Hi, everyone. I'm Fraser Kane. I'm the publisher of Universe Today. I've been a space and astronomy journalist for over 20 years. Today, I am joined by Dr. Leah Jenks, one of our journalists with the Weekly Space Hangout and a newly minted PhD physicist who is going to blow our minds today talking about relativity, cosmology, and many other topics. Leah, how's it going? I'm doing well. Thanks. And, and again, congratulations. I know we congratulated you on the weekly space hangout. Congratulations on your newly minted PhD. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's officially official as of this past Sunday. So, as of, it feels oh, good. really? So, just like yeah. as of a couple of days? Yeah, graduation was this last weekend. Yeah. And so, did you get like the secret book on how <laughs> to thrive as a, as a newly doctorate? Uh, astronomer. You know, I, I haven't gotten that yet, but hopefully check, it's coming in the mail. Yeah, like check your bank account. I'll send it to me with all of the, the secrets. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so what did you, I guess, what was your PhD in? What is your now official title? Yeah, so it's a PhD in physics. Um, so I'm a theoretical physicist, although, as you mentioned, I do put on my astronomer hat sometimes. Um, on weekly space hangout. Yep. Um, but basically, my um, PhD work was a, uh, I've worked on a pretty wide variety of things. Um, I've been very lucky that I've gotten to kind of, yeah, work on a bunch of different topics, but it's mostly on uh, kind of two disparate areas. So one is looking at higher spin particles and applications of those particles to cosmology, um, particularly um, in the context of dark matter. And then I've also worked quite a bit on um, modified theories of gravity. Um, and so just, this is not MOND <laughs> in, when we talk about modified right, gravity. Right. I'm talking about like modifications to um, Einstein's theory of general relativity. Um, so that's, those are kind of my two main areas um, that I focused on. All right, well, let's start with talking a bit about, about relativity. So, you know, you know, we're all familiar with, to some extent with relativity, I think, you know, you have to really do the math to get to the point that you're extremely familiar with it. But just this idea that, you know, originally, Newton was able to define the the laws of physics, the laws of gravity, motion, things like that. But there were various anomalies, and Einstein was able to come along and solve some of those problems, and make additional predictions that physicists are still trying to confirm today. What, and yet, I mean, obviously, you know, we can't make quantum mechanics and relativity, can't make gravity talk to each other yet. So what is sort of the thinking today about where the open spaces are to try and understand how to make, you know, what goes beyond Einstein? Yeah, so that's a really great question. So I think that the, the main thing right now is that I think we're in like a very exciting era where we have gravitational waves um, with the kind of LIGO collaboration. We're able to see black holes colliding, which have obviously um, confirmed general relativity to pretty extraordinary precision. Um, we also have several neutron star experiments that um, we can look at the gravitational effects from neutron stars. We now also, of course, have the Event Horizon Telescope. And so we're able to now confirm GR, but like in the same way that, um, 
using, for example, like particle colliders, one of the biggest things that, um, you know, scientists are doing at CERN and Fermilab and all these different places is to look for physics beyond the standard model. So we know that the standard model works because it describes, you know, everything in our universe pretty well. Um, but there's still, you know, some of these anomalies and things that, um, you know, need to go, we need to go beyond. And so that's what these particle colliders look at. And in the same way, the way that I think about it is that we're now in this very exciting time with gravity where we can do the same thing and say, we have this theory, it works really well, but we still have kind of these open questions and we're now able to, you know, use LIGO and um, all these different observables to look for, you know, potential signatures of physics beyond GR um, or look for uh, constraining other types of theories. And so in terms of the questions that I think are still open to be answered, um, quantum gravity, like you suggested. So um, yeah, you're absolutely right that we don't have a way to kind of marry quantum mechanics and gravity. And um, with some of these types of modified gravity theories that um, I've been looking into with my collaborators over the years, um, they're not necessarily quantum gravity, but they're maybe quantum gravity inspired theories. So kind of like, um, effective field theories, which are coming from some like higher energy. Uh, I'm not going to say quantum gravity, but some higher energy theory. Um, we also have, you know, dark matter. We don't know what dark matter is. We have dark energy. We don't know what dark energy is, you know, like, uh, 75% of the matter in the universe. We have no idea. Um, so there really are these open questions. And I think looking at modifications to Einstein's um, general relativity, uh, the kind of goal is to move in a direction of, you know, one or many of these open questions. Now, now you mentioned a bunch of potential, I guess, observations that astronomers are making in terms of colliding black holes of observing the event horizon near the black hole, etc. And there's I'm sure there's, you know, we could probably list off hundreds of possible observations. And then you also miss, you know, mentioned a bunch of potential ideas. What, what does it seem, you know, based on your work, what does nature seem to be indicating is a fruitful place to look? What do you think is going to deliver some useful clues at this point? Yeah, so I think right now, the biggest thing is going to be gravitational waves. Hmm. Um, in particular, um, looking at um, the coincident gravitational and electromagnetic events. So in the current um, LIGO um, uh, catalog, we have one of these events, GW 170817. Right. The killer uh, nova. Yes, so two colliding neutron stars um, that gave us a gravitational wave event and an electromagnetic counterpart. And so that event was used to actually rule out a ton of um, modified gravity theories. Oh, interesting. In can, can, yeah. you, can you sort of explain sort of why? What were some of the things yeah. that it was able to rule out? Yes. So um, this is actually, I think, totally beautiful piece of physics. Um, but basically, a lot of these types of modified gravity theories, one of the predictions that they make is that the speed of gravitational waves um, varies. So in general relativity, uh, per Einstein's predictions, gravitational waves propagate at the speed of light. Um, so we should expect that um, it's going to move at C, so uh, three times 10 to the eighth meters per second. Um, 
And so kilometers per second, maybe I messed that up. Let's see. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so um, in a lot of these modified gravity theories, the speed of propagation of the gravitational waves is slightly deviates um, from the speed of light. And so with oh, interesting. the okay. coincident event, we were able, uh, scientists were able to detect the gravitational waves and then also detect um, you know, this electromagnetic event, and they were able to determine the, the time differential um, that the gravitational waves and the electromagnetic event happened. And then they were able to get um, constraints on the speed of the gravitational waves. And so it's constrained to like one part in like 10 to the 15 or something like that. So right, right, right. a very, very small constraint. And so that basically killed a lot of modified gravity theories um, that, you know, couldn't be, that wouldn't fit into that constraint. Right. So, and, sorry. So just like this idea that, that the speed of gravity is the speed of light yes. and that, and that we saw those electromagnetic waves, we saw the, the gravitational waves, they came exactly at the speed of light. You know, there was a slight delay because one was released before the other, but essentially they came precisely at the speed of light. And so the, like a whole pile of theories that depended on mm -hmm. gravity moving not at the speed of light had to be hucked in the in the garbage exactly or, or, or have or to go back for retooling right right that's really interesting okay please continue yeah yeah so there's you know still some theories that are left there's ways to kind of you know uh configure other types of things um you know there's all theorists are always coming up with different ways to make their favorite theory uh right. work with the data um, but I think, you know, so that did a lot in terms of modified gravity, but that was one data point. That's the only event that we have so far. And so um, with LIGO 04, which is coming up, I think, starting in like January, mm -hmm. um, we expect and over the next couple of years that we'll, we'll have more of those types of events and be able to do um, find, you know, constraints on um, using this um, the gravitational electromagnetic kind of correspondence. Um, and I think that will say more about, uh, you know, will tighten the constraint on the speed of gravity. Um, there's other kind of areas that you can probe as well. So I think that will be, um, a big, right. Uh, so a big way to look into this. So it is kind of interesting if you kind of go back and think about the question that I asked you, what, where are the places that nature is giving us some hints on where we can look? Mm -hmm. And the answer you gave me was, here are some places that we know we don't need to look anymore. And mm. it's, it's funny because that is, that is a scientist's way of thinking. The, the mm. most exciting thing that you could do is disprove a theory. It's, right. it's like, it's, you know, if you could find a, uh, you know, a, I guess if you could find a negative outcome, negative result for the theory that you're proposing, then you're able to remove your theory off the table completely. And it's very satisfying. And I think it is something for scientists. It's something that they love more than mm -hmm. anything is to disprove the theory because it just, it's such a time saver. And so it's, and so it's interesting that that's, that that's where your mind goes. And, yeah. You know, I think, oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Well, I was just going to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and this has been a, this has been a sort of a thread in the scientists that I talk to is, mm -hmm. you know, I think a lot of people think that scientists want, they hold some kind of, I don't know, almost dogmatic belief about their theory. But the, but, the, but the scientific method is, is begging you to disprove yourself, that that is what gives you the quick dopamine hit so mm -hmm. you, can, you can get back out there. So anyway, I, I, I just find those interesting. 
Um, so, but please continue. Where, where else do you think we're going to see some progress? Oh yeah. So I, yeah, that's an interesting point. Just to comment on what you said. Like, I think that, um, definitely like you can think about in terms of modified gravity or like any theories, right. There's like, you can think about it in terms of like constraints or signatures and constraints are a little bit, you know, less exciting because like you said, it's just kind of, you know, um, ruling out a theory, but I think that's just as important. Um, but in terms of like signatures that we could see, um, there's a lot of work being done in different areas. So some of my work um, has been looking at um, black holes and looking at how properties of specifically rotating black holes um, might be modified in, um, uh, I've looked specifically at a, a modified theory of gravity called dynamical churn Simon's gravity. Whoa. And so um, what what is it? Yeah, what is it? So basically, um, it's a modification of um, Einstein's theory of general relativity that's um, essentially motivated from kind of string theory ish uh, a perspective. Um, and for um, the mathematically inclined. Uh, people in your audience, basically what it is, is you add um, an additional term to the action of general relativity um, that encodes some parity violation. So um, in the universe, right, if you look at um, right then left, and if you flip right to left and there's a symmetry, we call that parity. Um, and so this theory essentially um, has, it violates parity. Um, and so that can lead to some interesting um, uh, effects specifically for black holes, um, which we found. And so I should mention that this theory um, was pioneered by my advisor, um, Stefan Alexander and um, close collaborator, Nico Yunus. Um, and they've done, they and many others have done tons of work on this. Um, but some of our recent work has been looking at um, rotating black holes in this theory. And we found that basically um, these black holes have additional structure that's not present um, for black holes in general relativity. Hmm. And so we call them the Chern-Simons caps. And so basically if you have a black hole, um, there is like a region at the, the north and south pole of the black hole that has basically a kind of unique, we call it like an equation of state. So any matter in this black hole, in these regions is going to behave slightly differently than it would if it was just a black hole in GR. And so um, this is still kind of a work. We put a paper out uh, last year and we're still thinking about it, but basically the hope is, and that can kind of be um, applied to a lot of different theories as well, is that um, by observing black holes, we'll be able to find some sort of unique signature for example, from these cap-like regions um, that would be able to, we would be able to say, oh, that signature from that black hole is uh, is a smoking gun for Chern-Simons gravity as opposed to just a GR black hole. Right. That might have been a very convoluted answer, but. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I mean, I think, I think this is the heart of it, right? Which is, which is that Einstein's theories predicts the observations that have been made beautifully and, and every time, like we report on this on Universe Today all the time, that it's just like, you know, Einstein proven right again, 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 <laughs> again, again, to even more degrees of, of precision, even more digits of precision. 
And so you're looking and when you think about how Einstein made predictions about say frame dragging, to predict the, the motions of, of Mercury, it was it was right at the edges of what Newton was able to predict. It was these tiny little anomalies that started to build up that told people that there was something there that was that was wrong. And it was Einstein that was able to, to make that prediction. And so I guess it's the same thing. It's only at the extremes. Mm -hmm. Will you be able to see whatever the gaps are in Einstein's predictions start to reveal themselves? So why the poles of the black hole? Why is that a why is that a region, which you think will reveal these these anomalies? Yeah, so that's just like that's for this particular theory. Mm. Um, I would say, kind of the black holes in general might, um, you know, definitely be like a good laboratory for fundamental physics. Um, but for this particular case, um, the the reason that the poles are special is because one of the defining features of Chern-Simons gravity is that there's an associated scalar field. So there's like a, a particle that comes along with gravity for free. Um, hmm. And so okay. in the particular solution that we were looking at, which I will also say is an approximation because uh, there aren't any exact solutions uh, analytically that have been found, um, in that solution, this, the scalar field is maximized at the north and south pole of the black hole. It's like kind of scalar hair, if you will. Right. Um, and so um, basically the, these regions that where matter kind of behaves differently follows the profile of this scalar field around the black hole. So it could be that if there's other types of theories, they may have other regions like this or... Um, you know, other things like that, that may be kind of like a smoking gun. But for this particular theory, it's, it's at the poles. And so what would it take? Like, you know, we consider the capabilities of the Event Horizon Telescope today. We, we always like to talk about it, you know, observing a donut <laughs> on the moon. Yeah. Uh, it's a very high resolution instrument. It is a telescope of the size of planet Earth. And yet it can only resolve two supermassive black holes in the universe as blobby donuts uh what would it take to start to like like have the has the data that comes out of the event horizon telescope already today allow you to make any kind of of prediction or or negative um result or would it take a better event horizon telescope yeah so for this particular example that i'm talking about um it's the regions that I'm talking about are very, very small. Um, I think for the, if you're looking at like M87, um, the maximum extent is like three AU. Um, so in, in the contrast of like the whole black hole, it's pretty small. So I think in terms of the realistic um, observational prospects, um, in terms of directly observing, you know, these regions, that would probably be I think we're still pr probably pretty far off from mm. that. Um, everything is, you know, very small effect because we know GR has to be right, you know, to some very high degree. So any sort of deviation from GR, and this is just in general, has to be some very small, you know, perturbation, which is going to be difficult to see observationally. Um, but kind of the dream that we're hoping for is that there might be some sort of like induced signature from uh, these regions, from this black hole that we would be able um, to detect via like some other means. But like I think it could affect the polarization or something. Exactly. Right. 
Yeah, but I think we're not, we're not quite there yet, but I think that that's, you know, the exciting part of research is figuring out, you know, how can we observe this thing? What can we say? And so what would be the implications if you're right? What, what does this, what does this, how does this, I guess, what predictions does this make for gravity itself? And what is, does it help explain gravity better? Yeah. So I think the implications, if, turn Simon's gravity, for example, is correct. Um, it definitely gives us um, a closer connection to quantum gravity. Um, because like I said, you know, this isn't necessarily a quantum gravity theory, but it can be described as like an effective field theory um, of a like higher energy string theory, for example. And so um, I think that it would have you know, some meaningful implications about like, we're getting a step closer to quantum gravity. Um, and I think it would also kind of open up, um, you know, a wider range um, of theory space and say, now we have, we've observed this thing, this like turn Simon's gravity seems to be right. Um, and now what's next? So I think there's always kind of more questions um, that you can ask. So then th- this idea of quantum gravity, <clears throat> it's, it feels like a fairly loose term just a, a way to describe gravity in terms of quantum mechanics. What is sort of the, you know, when you think about quantum gravity, what does that mean to you? Yeah. So I guess the way that I think about quantum gravity is in the way that you're describing, but also I think in terms of um, like energy scales. So as um, I consider myself like a particle physicist slash relativist slash cosmologist. And specifically for, you know, kind of particle physicists and cosmologists, we really think of things in terms of energy scales. And if you think about the um, historical evolution of the universe, we start um, at the Big Bang at some very, very high energy scale. And then that slowly has kind of come down to the energies that we see today. Um, And so quantum gravity, we can think of as... um, you know, what we call the Planck scale. So in in particle physics, we have like the Planck mass, the Planck length, the Planck time. And so um, quantum gravity is like the theory that describes what is happening when we are at these extremely high energies or, um, you know, equivalently at what is happening in the very, very early universe when the universe was at these energies that we don't have um, a way to describe. So... I mean, there are no longer places in the universe that match those energies. Those are only available shortly after the Big Bang. Right. And in, I guess in theory, you can create them in particle accelerators. Is there, is there anything that is going to get us close to those kinds of, of energies and densities? So right now, the answer to that is no. Um, but I think that there is, um, there's the idea is that you could potentially find like other ways to find, for example, imprints of quant, these quantum gravity effects in observables that we can see today. Um, so one example of this, um, that isn't quite at quantum gravity, uh, scales, but is similar, um, is this idea of, um, it's a, a program that's been kind of ongoing for the last couple of years called the Cosmological Collider, mm-hmm. um, which basically says in the very early universe, um, you have this period where there are very high energies, not quite to the quantum gravity scale um, or the, the Planck scale, as we say, but still very high. 
that we cannot access in colliders or anything like that today. But there are these this period in the early universe where um, the universe itself kind of acts as a particle collider. And wow. potentially those uh, particles that are interacting, particles and fields that are interacting during that time may imprint themselves, for example, in the cosmic microwave background. And we observe the cosmic microwave background today. And so um, this has been some ongoing work in the last few years where people have said, okay, if we have this period, we have some interactions. Um, we obviously can't observe that today, but can we see signatures of this in the cosmic microwave background? And um, again, the precision isn't there to find uh, those direct observations yet, but there are concrete predictions that have been made. Um, and so I think that there's like a similar um, parallel uh, for quantum gravity and it's like very high energy physics uh, that people think about. Now you say this idea of natural, like there are natural particle accelerators. Where are these? What are what? What is the cause of them? Yeah. So for this particular example, um, I'm thinking about inflation um, in the very early universe. Okay. Yeah. And so basically, um, so inflation we have very shortly after the Big Bang, like 10 to the minus 32 seconds post Big Bang, um, we have this period of like very very rapid um, high energy expansion. Or I guess the energy scale is a little bit. People disagree on that. But the, the, the idea is that it's a very uh, high energy process, like 10 to the 13 GeV, uh, your particle physics, uh, you know, scales. And the idea is that if you have some, you know, these interactions, they will imprint themselves in the CMB. Um, and so that idea of like using inflation as a particle collider um, has gained um, a lot of interest in the last couple of years. And so this was like pioneered by uh, Nima Arkani Hamed, um, Juan Maldacena, Xinjing Chen, um, and Daniel Bauman and others. Okay, I want to understand this because it's a pretty neat idea. So hold on. So we've got this time of inflation, this time of rapid expansion, where like the universe mm -hmm. went from the size of, I don't know, like a, the observable universe went from the size of like a volleyball to many, many, many times bigger. Yeah. And during that time, because it was so hot and so dense, it was acting like a natural particle collider, in addition to all the other things it was doing in terms of expanding. And the particles that it was generating were embedding themselves in the surrounding universe. And there should be some fingerprint visible in the cosmic microwave background. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, that's okay. Basically the right idea. Yeah. So you have essentially like these particles that are interacting at much at, you know, the energy scale of inflation, which is a much higher energy than we could obtain today. And then, yeah, after inflation, when everything kind of cools off um, and then we get the formation of the CMB, we would see that effect. And so what would it look like in the CMB? So um, it's it, it shows up in something called the CMB non-Gaussianity, um, at which has not been observed, um, but basically the idea is that there is some um, kind of angular dependence um, in the CMB that we observe, um, and you would see some kind of like non-Gaussian signature, and that could be like mapped to you know these particle interactions. Now, so sorry, when you say non-angular, what does that mean? So, so a non-Gauss non-Gaussianity. So when you say non-Gaussian, uh, so what do you mean? Yeah. So basically, if we have uh, like a Gaussian distribution, 
Um, when we look at uh, the cosmic microwave background, um, we expect like the distribution of the fluctuations to be Gaussian um, and follow this kind of uh, this distribution. And if we see any deviations from that, um, I think I'm saying this right, then we, uh, we call that a non-Gaussianity. And so I will also just, you know, clarify here that this has not actually been observed yet. Yes, yes. Um, but uh, hopefully with future kind of CMB experiments, we may be able uh, to right. get a little bit closer. And, and so really, like I think about things like, say, supermassive black holes or colliding neutron star. Then when I think about the most extreme events in the universe, and we have some, we have some evidence, like we have these cosmic rays that are coming in at, at energy levels higher than anything that can like it doesn't seem like there's anything out in the there in the universe that can generate them they mm -hmm. are natural particle accelerators but yeah. the but the inflationary period of the universe itself would be like next level yeah exactly right right that's kind of that's such a neat idea that yeah, i think it's amazing <laughs> yeah 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 just this idea that the early universe was just this incredible um and I'm, you know i'm sort of thinking of analogies like like when you think about cosmic rays, we have telescopes down here on Earth that can detect the cosmic rays, but they can't detect them directly. They detect them as the cosmic rays hit the atmosphere are broken up and the particles rain down. And they detect the the after effects of those particles. Um, and then they use they use that to be able to know where cosmic rays are hitting the atmosphere. And so you normally you would need a space telescope. But in this case, you, you can actually do it this way. And so you get these indirect detections. How how much do you think that we will have to depend on these indirect detections compared to direct detections for making progress in, in relativity? So I think that indirect detections are probably going to be the most important. Um, and I think one thing I also that kind of goes along with this that I wanted to mention is that I think that like using now that we have all of these uh, this gravitational waves, the black holes, like all of these observations, I think people are now starting to think about also gravity as a as a laboratory for particle physics as well. So it's not even just like tests of relativity, but I think that there is uh, a lot of really interesting work to be done. Um, looking at, um, you know, how can we probe like fundamental physics um, beyond just, you know, relativity or modified gravity with these types of observables. So exactly like you're saying, like using a neutron star as a particle collider or black holes. Um, and I think um, I should also mention that like the stochastic gravitational wave background, which we assume exists, um, is going to be another area where we could potentially, um, you know, look for these types of anomalies or signatures. And, um, and this this gravitational wave background, there's been some really interesting progress made using pulsars to yes. be able to sense this just background wave everywhere. Yeah, so I think we're my again, I'm not an expert on uh, the, the stochastic background. Uh, necessarily, but my understanding is that we are pretty close to a detection. I think there was um, some kind of anomaly in Nanograv, which is a collaboration, yeah. which pulsed our timing. Um, they have found something that they couldn't quite say this is a signature of uh, the background, but 
with perhaps more observations, they will get there. So I think that that will be um, another another window into all of the really exciting physics that we can do um, with gravity. Now, we, we talked a bit about the existing technology that is out there right now. Uh, LIGO, the ability to observe colliding neutron stars, the Event Horizon Telescope to see black holes. If if you were able to be the chair at the Decadal Survey, which you know I'm sure just a couple of years away you'll be there. Um, what what are some of the the directions that you think would be the most productive for for new missions, new instruments, new capability for humanity to be able to to get a better sense of of the underlying, I guess, you know, this conversation we've been having again and again, which is like how can we move physics forward? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, so I will say I am like fully a theory, spend a ton of time thinking about, uh, you know, missions, but I will say that I think that um, like multi-messenger astronomy is going to be super learned so much from that singular event. So I think continuing on that path to say, okay, how can we observe these like coincident events? Is there, are there other observables that we should be looking for? Um, from that I think is important. Um, I think also looking at um, this gravitational wave background is gonna be really important. Um, if we can, you know, make the event horizon telescope bigger, I don't know, maybe we can put like a radio dish on the moon or something. <laughs> right, yeah, um, yeah. there's been proposals for that. Also proposals for just like space-based ones, maybe something yeah. out, at, out at L2 or L4, L5. And, and we did, there was a paper that was released saying that if you could get a space-based observatory, that would give you, say, the photon ring of a black hole, an image, not just of the event horizon, but the actual, like, literally as close to a black hole as you can possibly get. That would probably get you within your 3AU of M87's black hole. And so all you yeah. need to do is just go to space. Radio telescope in space, that can't be hard. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. So then... You know, you, you know, we talked about this at the very beginning, your newly minted PhD. What does that mean in terms of your of your career? So you're shifting to a new position at the University of Chicago, right? Yes. So I am in the fall. I'm going to be joining uh, the University of Chicago Kavli Center for Cosmological Physics um, as a postdoctoral fellow. Um, so I will be, uh, you know, continuing some of this work that I've been doing. Um, as well as kind of, I'm hoping to branch out as well into some new areas. Um, so yeah, looking forward to that. And so what happens next? Like, do you have, you know, will you bring a bunch of research, a bunch of fields that you're interested in looking into? Or is the expectation that they're going to have a bunch of new advisors, new fields of research, and you will be jumping in and, and participating on other people's papers? How, how does this work? Do you know? Yeah, so it's a combination. So um, the position I have, I'm very fortunate that it's like a fellowship where there's a lot of freedom. Um, so I will, I have some projects that I'm still kind of working on um, with collaborators here at Brown um, and, and elsewhere. Um, and so I'll continue working on those. I have, you know, ideas for things that I want to work on. Um, but then also, you know, there's a lot of really amazing people at Chicago and I'm really looking forward to collaborating with them. Um, you know, 
I've already started kind of talking to some people about some new ideas. Um, so yeah, the nice thing about being a, a theorist is that there's a lot of kind of flexibility and creativity and you just kind of, you know, can brainstorm with people and think of things and then write the paper. So um, it's a lot of fun. What you just described, though, for many people kind of sounds like agony. <laughs> that, that like when you have a blank piece of paper and you have to sit down and start doing just hard thing, you can't browse the Internet. You can't do a bunch of, of check for some stuff on TikTok. You know, you can't get those quick <laughs> dopamine hits. You've got to sit there and in many cases from first principles, build up some kind of mathematical proof or, or theory. How do you, how do you go about that? What is your, what is your method? Yeah. So, well, first of all, if somebody is like solving quantum gravity on TikTok, I would like to know that. Yeah, for sure. If but, you've got that solved, then like great. That. So if somebody wants yeah. to do that, that'd be great. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, I think it depends on, um, kind of from project to project. So I will say like being like a theoretical physicist can sound like very fun and glamorous, but most of the time it's not like, it's mostly right. You're just like sitting. And um, I spend a lot of time looking at like math literature from the 1950s. If there's some like special function that I need to find, but I would say like the process um, can come in kind of two different ways. So in terms of uh, the first, like it can be, you know, there's, there'll be a paper that somebody wrote um, or on some theory or some model and you can say, okay, like, how can I apply this thing to something that I'm working on? Or how can I just like extend my work like one step further? Um, and so that's kind of more like incremental. So you like look at what you've been working on and you look in the literature and you say, okay, what kind of similar things are other people doing? Um, how can I think of something that I can kind of extend my work to? Mm -hmm. And then the other one, um, which I think happens maybe less frequently, but you know, I also don't know, is when you like have a whole new idea and you say, okay, I'm sitting here looking at papers. I'm trying to think of something to work on and something just kind of clicks and you say like, oh, um, I have like a new idea that nobody has thought of before and um, I'm going to kind of run with that. Um, and so I think they're both, you know, equally important, but I think the, the latter is maybe more fun. But when we look at some of the greatest predictions theories made, I guess some of them, you know, Einstein came up, wrote his original theories of, of relativity fairly quickly, special relativity, but I don't know. It's like, it's like, how do you know when to stop? Because if there's like a really complicated mathematical, we think about like the proof for, for Matt's last theorem, like it took mm -hmm. decades and, and in many cases, hundreds of people all working, chipping away at it, getting closer and closer until finally someone was able to, to prove it. Where do you, as you sit and, and work on some math or work on some theory, when do you feel like you've gone far enough? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think that there's a balance between, you know, it, it is possible, like people spend, I've spent, you know, like a year working on something that like didn't actually end up working, um, right. you know, and so I think that there's a balance between like, you know, how challenging and difficult is this problem, and then saying like, can I make incremental strides towards the problem, or is it, you know, too tractable and not too intractable and not important enough, if that makes sense. So like, I think the kind of, um, 
in terms of like, you know, like Fermat's theorem, you know, you always want to say like, even if it's some incremental step, we're making steps forward. But I think there's also like a balance of, you know, you have to think about like, is this going to be impactful? And like, what should I be spending my time on? And I think it's, you know, important to do both, um, you know, maybe smaller technical things that aren't as immediately impactful, but then also, you know, look at kind of the big picture as well. And so I think having a balance is good. And when we think about people working on say string theory developed what back in the 1970s um, that that we are now 50 years plus since the development of the theory entire careers have begun and ended working on string theory and in terms of its original purpose for some for answering the fundamental nature of reality it has fallen short hasn't hasn't delivered the goods yet maybe it will who knows enormous expense, a lot of people working on it, a lot of careers. Uh, it's produced some very interesting math that has had some applications, some actual practical applications in other fields, but it didn't do its original job yet. How, how you know, as you set your chart, you, as you begin your career, does does that give you pause? Do you what how do you how do you sort of think about the about the time spent by people who've spent their whole career on something that hasn't panned out? Yeah, so I think that's definitely, you know, a concern. I definitely like to, I'm a, you know, externally incentivized, you know, person. So I would love there to be, you know, some um, confirmation of the things that I'm working on. But I will say that, you know, I started off, my undergrad degree was in astronomy. And so I did like observational astronomy, looking at like quasars. Um, and then I went completely to the other end. I did a master's and I studied like very mathematical uh, formulations of higher dimensional black holes that like nobody was ever going to observe. It's just kind of doing this calculation for, you know, the calculation's sake. And I think that like I have found a balance somewhere in the middle where I do work on um, a lot of topics that are not necessarily going to be immediately observable, but they are at least informed by observations. So in terms of, you know, the dark matter problem, like I would hope that that would be solved in my lifetime. Yeah. And even if it's not, even if it's not my theory that I, you know, I would hope that, um, we will see a solution to that. I think, you know, with um, all the, the gravity that we're gravi gravitational observables, I think we'll be able to um, make some progress there. And so I think that there's, you know, a balance with, you know, working on, on theory and um, these really kind of like, you know, up in the clouds topics, um, but they're at least, you know, informed by things that are tangible yeah. is, is how I see it. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's I think it's important that you got that that fundamental fundamental sort of basics in observational work. Definitely. Yeah, and it's it's funny like like I'm I'm a fan of the experimenters. I'm not going to lie. That's my that's my um you know, if I was just sort of like pick a team, I'm <laughs> I I like the experimenters in in that they kind of don't know where they're going specifically. They're just trying to just poke at nature and see what pops out, but they yeah. need the, the, the guidance of the theorists to even know where to go and where and where to look. But, it, but I feel like, you know, the experimenters at least are sometimes getting null results, which is still helping guide the, the process. 
And it's mm -hmm. and again, I and, and I think it's not necessarily because I respect experimenters more. But when I sort of put myself in the seat of a theoretician, it just feels like my heart would be broken too often to mm -hmm. to to have the to keep working kind of like, Oh, I put all this work and it's just it's all just it's all just turning to spaghetti in my hands. And that's a year that I just can't, you know, bring back. I don't know. It's I have I have respect for people who can sit down and think for that long, because I can't. Um, so you talked about dark matter. What is your preference right now for dark matter? What do you what do you feel is the is the answer most likely to be dark matter? Yeah, so again, I hesitate to say anything, you know, definitive. But I think that I would lean towards um, the axion being um, perhaps the most promising of all the candidates. Um, I think that, you know, the WIMP is a lot of work has been done both theoretically and um, experimentally looking for the WIMP. Um, they have not found it yet. Uh, they haven't found any evidence for it. Um, and so kind of that, while I think it's um, a nice theory, I think that parameter space is closing a little bit. Hmm. Um, and so I think that looking for um, alternatives is really important. I know some people, some people like primordial black holes, some people like, um, you know, other types of things. I've worked on a few um, different areas, but I think that probably the most in my opinion, the most promising is um, the axion. So it's like a very light um, particle. And there's been a lot of work done, um, you know, uh, showing how this would, um, they can form, you know, these halos and things like that, uh, that we observe. So what, that would be my bet. But that would be your bet, yeah. What, what experiment to detect the axion is the one that you like the best? So I'm not entirely sure experimentally what is like specifically okay, okay. That's fine. right now um but i do know that like for example uh, with event horizon telescope um so kind of going back to black holes again one like signature if we had an axion um and they're around black holes they they uh, have this process called super radiance where there's basically like an axion cloud that like emanates from the black holes. Um, and so if we had axion dark matter, we would presumably have this effect. Um, and so using um, EHT, uh, this the masses of this type of particle has been constrained. Um, and I think there's other ways to look for this particular effect as well um, with just looking at black hole populations and things like that. But I'm not actually sure about the kind yeah. of direct axion detection is do you know is there no no well i mean there's a few i mean i'm familiar with it with a few of them you know i don't know mm -hmm. enough i mean it's sort of on my list is to find some people and and what i like a a series that i really want to do is just take each one of the possible candidates mm -hmm. for dark matter and then just interview somebody who is working on an experiment Oh, that yeah. can try to they can just sort of explain what they're looking for what the constraints are what they've seen so far etc and just kind of run through the list one after the other and have it be a series and so so hopefully by the end i'll, I'll have an an opinion at least i can and then i can maybe you know i find like often some you know my job is to sometimes just share people's research with each other 
know, like, oh, yeah, I'm working on this thing. Oh, do you know this person over there is working on this other thing? It's really brilliant. I had no idea. Okay. And then they can, and they can talk, which I think is, is helpful. But, but what I, what I found that was really interesting, you said, like, going back to the idea of, of the black hole, it sounds like, because the event horizon around a black hole is so extreme, it is like the concentration of gravity at its greatest extent, plus all the other stuff that goes along with it, the magnetic forces, the concentration of matter, the, you know, the particles that are going to be colliding, etc. They sound just like just good places to look around for almost anything you're hoping for, because everything is, is to the extreme near a black hole. And I hadn't really sort of thought about it, but it feels like mega event horizon telescope experiments would be really helpful to test all kinds of stuff. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, and I think like, you know, everybody was very excited when we got uh, the original image. And then, of course, again, with um, SAG A-Star. But I think that like, you know, in order to test some of these things, we do need better resolution. Maybe we need the full array um, space-based telescope. But I think that definitely we're kind of starting to creep up to the point where we can actually use these black holes as like a fundamental physics laboratory, which I think is amazing. But because you're, you're exactly right there. It's the most extreme environment um, that, you know, we have in the universe. And so I think as we... Um, you know, increase the, the observational power, there, there will be a lot um, of exciting physics that reveals itself to yeah, us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely fascinating. So if people want to keep track of your work and watch as you start to smash yourself against the various theories that are <laughs> that remain to be sorted out, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, so um, my papers are always posted um, on the archive. Um, I'm pretty active on Twitter. My Twitter handle is um, at Leah G. Jenks. Um, I also update my website periodically, um, just leahjenks.com. And um, yeah, you can contact me via email if you have questions. And um, yeah, I think that's it. Well, and then, you know, we'll have this conversation again in a few years, or maybe a few yes. decades. <laughs> As you, uh, you know, as we look back and think about, you know, how how these these theories have unfolded, how the observations have matched your predictions, and how we have a better understanding of of our place in the universe. It's it's fascinating yeah. work. So thank you for doing it. Oh yeah, thank you for letting me talk about it. All right, all right. Take care. Good luck. All right. Thank you so much. Bye bye. Bye.